1: Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
2: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Let's hit it!
1: Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> <laughs> Give me museums! Fall
3: Park! Give me a woo! coaster. What's that spell? Sandy!
1: If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: The, po- the Podcast Playground.
4: Hooray! I'm Buzz Knight, the host of the Taking a Walk podcast, we're in Nashville for this episode. If you want to find out when the next episode is ready or if you're interested in becoming a guest, sign up for our newsletter at takinawalk.com. Today's guest is an absolute musical force of nature. Amanda Shires is an American singer-songwriter and fiddle player. Her latest release is called Take It Like a Man. She's released seven solo albums. In 2019, she formed the amazing group The High Women along with Brandy Carlisle, Natalie Hemby, and Marin Morris. I'm so grateful and so excited to meet her. Please share this episode with a friend as we take a walk with Amanda Shires. Oh, well, Amanda Shires, it's so nice to uh, be with you. Sort of taking a walk.
3: <laughs> we took a walk from the cars to the barn.
4: We had a plan, but Mother Nature had its way. Yep, it worked.
3: Or one of those other gods.
4: But we're okay. We're inside the, your, your beautiful surroundings here. You call this?
3: The barn of internal wandering. <laughs> <laughs> and why that? Um, I think for me, part of the way my process works is that um, I don't try to get in the way of, of that part of the brain that needs to... Um, find its own way or do its own thing when you're creating. So if I wake up in the morning and I do my, I do TM, so after I do my Transcendental Meditation, I'll come out here and do at least five minutes of writing or 20 or however long it feels like going. And then I'll be told or led to record or paint or practice or play Miss Pac-Man or go grocery shopping if I have to or garden.
4: But every day is sort of this, let's see where it rolls.
3: Yeah, on the days when I don't have, you know, familial obligations.
4: Which is many days.
3: Well, I do, do, but I don't, you know, to to balance and to be... um, Well, I find that no amount of of good parenting makes up for an unhappy mother. So I find that balance is super important. Like, um, I do the job of, of... mothering and I have to sort of set boundaries to make sure I don't just do that all day.
4: Yeah. Because it could be a day long.
3: It could be all whole day <laughs> event. long. Yeah, and sometimes those, those days happen, you know, especially on the weekends and things like that. Those are definitely all for Mercy and Jason. But we all have to maintain our own identities first before we can be other identities for others.
4: So can you take us back to that moment when you knew that you wanted to ask your your dad to buy that uh, first uh, instrument.
3: Yeah, um, it it would seem random, except for it, it wasn't random. Um, my, doc, my dad had a relationship, um, a good relationship with this guy um, named Ad Garrett, who owned Ad Garrett's pawn shop in Mineral Wells, Texas. At that time, the population was one four three four eight, and um, it was kind of the place where you went and traded guns or knives or you know instruments or you know all kinds of things were bought and sold there but he went in there specifically for a new knife for um he 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 hunts deer with bow and arrow and stuff but you know at that time we ate deer and squirrel and stuff poor poor folks is what i'm describing and um he needed a knife and he went in there to get a new one because he had broke his somehow and um i saw it hanging on the wall and i I just looked at it, I walked around some, tried to feign interest in knives and I just stood there and then the smart salesman that A.D. Garrett was saw me looking at the fiddle and came and got it down for me. And then after my dad picked out his knife, he came to get me in and I was by that time begging for the fiddle and I just didn't know why or how it worked or anything. I just, and it was about as high up as that little old uh, electric ukulele right there. Mm-hmm. and I just had to have it and then my dad was like no I don't have that kind of money it was $60 and um, then AD was like well you could take it home and just come back and pay me as you get it and my dad was like geez um, okay and um, he said you have to swear to me you're going to learn it because I don't know this I don't have this kind of money and um, and then I took it, took it back to his house and broke all the strings and um After the summer was over, I took it home to my mom, and she enrolled me in the school orchestra. And then after that, uh, my teacher recommended that I have private lessons. And then my private lessons teacher decided that I also needed to learn fiddle. And um, when he showed me Spanish two-step, that's when I decided I was going to be a fiddle player. And I went to my mom's car and said, I'm a fiddle player now. And she said, as long as you maintain your classical and your orchestra um, learning, you can also learn fiddle. And I said, okay. And um, that's how that got started.
4: That was the beginning of everything, right? You were, you were, mm-hmm. you were stuck.
3: Yeah, I don't... I, I, don't, I, don't I, I try to think about why that happens. And... Um, and the... Um, uh, the thunder agrees it's accenting my words here
4: <laughs> and by the way people like on this podcast the sounds so we don't they like
3: i mean any- we could go out closer to it if you want <laughs> there's a there's a bar right there and there's some birds that won't be flying i'm very party. comfortable right okay now. cool awesome uh, <laughs> yeah that was i think about it um sometimes and i think you know, there's a lot going on in my childhood and stuff at that time. And um, being nine and eight and nine years old, um, you don't really have, or we didn't have, the uh, the kind of language that it that we would need to teach kids. Or you know, my, my parents were young when they had me. They didn't have the language to even verbalize their own emotions, much less teach me how to do it. So I had no vocabulary or no means. Of which to even talk about my feelings, and um, I think by divine intervention, it was it was uh, put on me to learn the the uh, insurmountable chore of of what it is to play the fiddle.
4: <laughs> Did you, you ever doubt impression. that you would figure it out?
3: No, I I, I didn't doubt I would figure it out. I, I knew that you know if anything, the worst thing could happen would be I'd be the worst the worst in the class, but I'd still be doing something I liked, you know, or maybe I'd not be the best one in the world, but I'd still be doing something I loved. And then, during that learning, I figured out that music helped me best when it came to expression. And and, and that kind of helps you um, daily when you're going through anything, how to get the emotions off yourself and figure it out.
4: So then you're 15 years old, and you end up playing with this... Incredible band, the Texas Playboys. Mm-mm.
3: Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I they, not only did I, okay. I'll start from the beginning. So, in my lessons with my violin teacher privately, Lanny was Lanny Field was noticing that I was only drawn to certain types of passages, and I would be I would excel at certain very difficult passages, and the rest I was bored and doing poorly you know, he said, why don't you play this part as well as you do the other parts? I said, that doesn't interest me. And he was like, well, if you do it, you know, or when you do it, I will also show you something that I've been learning, and it's fiddle. And he was actually in the process of of transcribing, actually have it here randomly, hold on one second. He was in the process of transcribing old fiddle tunes from Frankie McCorder, and um, taking them from learning him, learning them by ear, like all the parts from Frankie McCorder, who I eventually learned fiddle from. Uh, two two years later, I'm getting to that. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Kind of a lot to talk about all at once, isn't it? It's awesome. Um, so, Lanny was learning fiddle, and. Um, from Frankie, and Frankie learned from Eck Robertson, the first recorded fiddle player 1926, and somewhere in Texas, so I think that's the right year. And, um, anyway, so it's like Eck, Frankie, then me and Lanny were learning from them. But it wasn't stuff you could read on the paper, and this is what I've been studying, this reading music and classical. And so he was transcribing it so that it wouldn't get lost in the shuffle of time. Right. And, um, and put it on the first song I learned, and um, he showed me this song, and that, it was this song where I ran out to the car and said, "I'm a fiddle player, Mom." <laughs> <laughs> this song, Spanish Two Step, the Bob Wills song, and I just loved it. And it's Frankie's arrangement, but you know it's a Bob Wills song. And so uh-huh. um, he showed it to me, and then he showed me the work he was doing and transcribing and learning from Frankie McCorder, who played with the Playboys who was a foreman of the J. Abrams Ranch in Lipscomb, Texas, which is just a few miles away from Turkey, Texas. And um, actually, more turkeys live in Lipscomb than people. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> and incidentally, Frankie's dog was Hank the Cow Dog. Oh, okay. The actual one. And, um, and um, do you know the Hank the Cow Dog book? It no, no. was well, a series of books, and um, this wonderful writer wrote these Hank the Cowdog children's books that I'd heard of, and I thought it was the coolest thing. Frankie's actual dog was Hank the Cowdog. Right. No shit. <laughs> and, um, so eventually, after becoming very interested, decided um, to tell Lanny that I was going to help him, you know, with all this, and play music with him and, and Frankie, and I was going to learn by ear too, and all this. So my mom would drive me down there to Frankie and. Through Frankie and Lanny, I met Tommy Alsop, who was uh, in charge of the Texas Playboys at that time. And um, he was, at one time, um, in the Buddy Holly band. He was the bass player. No, he was a guitar player. Waylon was a bass player in that band, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Tommy Alsop was a fantastic producer at Human. And um, lots of lore exists about Tommy Alsop. He was the guy that flipped the coin Richie Valens. Um, yeah. And uh, he wow. had he had a lot of a long history. He had Liberty Records, and he um, did all kinds of fantastic stuff. But anyway. So, through Lanny and Frankie, I met Tommy, and that's how I wound up with the Texas Playboys, you know. They were all in their 70s and 80s during this time, and sometimes not all the fiddle players could make it. Sometimes people passed away, and I found myself in the lucky position of of, of um, being in the group. And um, all I had to do was be willing to play any of these parts in the event that somebody didn't show up. So, I memorized all the parts first, the, the you know, the melody and the yep. harmony and the low harmony. And um, most of the time I got stuck on the low, the low harmony. And I was happy with that, and eventually they had me learn to improvise and then I sang for the first time, which was a disaster. And um, yeah, they were my best friends, I compare everything to that experience.
4: Now why was that first singing experience a disaster?
3: Oh my god, luckily they were all my friends. It was like having seven granddads is what it was like. <laughs> um, uh, so we had talked about it, and I was going to sing, because I could sing harmony, and so they're like, you should take lead at the Christmas show. And I was like, okay, I'll try. And we practiced it, you know, ran through it once. It was all great. And then the show comes around, and I stand up there to sing a little Walk With You Sure Would Go Good, um, which is the first line of the song Sure Would Go Good, the song that I first chose to sing. <laughs> and. Um, you know, we played the part, do 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 the little intro, and then I go up there and no, nothing came out, and I was like, oh no, this is the worst, this is terrible, and I have a picture of it, and um, my friend Shelby was there with me, and she took the picture, but they're all just cracking up, looking down, and I'm like, oh my god, what is happening? And then they don't stop playing, so I've learned a lot of things from them about when things happen on stage or not, they don't go right in, in what you do and don't do. You don't have to stop the whole song and make a big deal. So they turned it around again and um, during that time Leon Roush, the singer of the band grabbed my hand and he said I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to sing it right here in this invisible microphone while you sing it on the real microphone and I was like okay and it was very wavery and terrible I think in my mind's eye, my memory but um, I got through it and um i think that uh, probably what got me is the uh, the fear that comes along with you know standing in front of a bunch of people and there's lights on you and that goes back to somewhere primal that makes you feel like oh i better run you know this is flight or flight or fight here i'd better run it seems unnatural i don't know what it was but i was terrified and um after that it got it started getting a little easier with the lead singing but not much it took some time
4: but it was a defining moment.
3: Oh, it was, definitely. And um, the problem is is that when somebody asks me to do something and I say yes, I was, you know, my granddad drilled that into me and my dad more than anything, many more than any other thing. Like, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, you be there at a certain time. And um, I don't know why that seems to be so important to me, but I do it. And I told them I would do it, so... Uh, carried on. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I'd say you did.
3: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I wonder why I say yes to things, but it's okay.
4: <laughs> I hope you're you're not second guessing this uh, oh, no. this interview. <laughs>
3: no, I just sometimes I don't think too hard, and that's like instinctive yes or no answers. And I'm like shy to take more time and just think things through.
4: <laughs> so, who were those other influences as you were uh, growing into the business that were musical influences on you?
3: the best ones you know i didn't have any kind of heartbreaking music till i was much older Um, the first songwriter that i fell in love with was uh, cindy walker and i got to play for her 70th birthday party and become friends with her and um, uh, the first side person i ever saw that was a woman was bobby nelson and um, i recently Me and my friend Lawrence Rothman, a producer, we both produced a record on her before she passed away, and we're almost done with it, and it's beautiful. There's a song she wrote on it. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she taught uh, Willie. She's Willie Nelson's brother. I mean, sister. And um, she taught him most everything he knows about music. And she was in his band, and um, then she wasn't for a minute because they called her an unfit mother for doing that, and then, you know. Went went back to work and and became what society calls a fit mother, and um, and um, demoed Hammond B three organs, the one they came out and all that, and then returned to his band later um, until the end there. And uh, she was always playing the piano, wearing the black hat. And um, I did a, a we did that record on her. It came out great. She even has a song on it she wrote. Sorry, my ringer was going off. It's not a real cat.
4: <laughs> oh, okay.
3: I find the alarms on phones very alarming, so I have mine on a cat sound. That's good. Yeah. I
4: like that better. Yeah, I don't
3: have a cat, but <laughs> I have a cat sound. You have a
4: cat sound. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, but the influences that you have, I find so r- remarkable. You are uh, across so many different generations and types of styles and one of the people I'm fascinated by that I know you're fascinated with is Leonard Cohen oh when did God. that attraction occur
3: Oh my goodness okay so i was working at the record store in Lubbock Texas um cuz I, I you know i'm a heart good, like this thing about the people that i meet and 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 feel close to i think has a lot to do with how i was raised so Um, anyway, all that to say kind of gravitate to people with real stories and real life experience and I think I learned a lot of that from my granddad and then my work ethic is also from been bred into me from both sides my dad's side and my mom's. My granddad was a cotton picker before he became uh, a a nurseryman, a man that grows plants and greenhouses and things and um, had pecan orchards and peach orchards and we'd have to pick things and sell them but I have a work ethic, and I always feel funny if I'm not working, so when I wasn't playing with the Playboys or doing schoolwork, I would uh, work at the record store, and um, this guy I was working with named Jake, all he would play was Fugazi, and I don't know if you've ever heard that, but... Let me just tell you, I can put up with a lot of things for a long time, but two weeks of Fugazi will drive anyone bonkers. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, um, I, I lost my patience, and I said, this is it. This is it. I don't care that you're 6'7 and you weigh 300 pounds. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And he said, "He said when the last song's over, if you don't have a record in on it. It's, it's, it's going to be the next Fugazi record. And I ran as fast as I could to the aisle where I'd been staring at this Leonard Cohen record. And I'd never heard it or anything. I just, the picture once again, or the look of it, it looked interesting. The eyes, it was something about the eyes. And um, I put it on and he was like, oh, I love Leonard Cohen. And I was like, well, hell yes, this is a win. And I was like, who's Leonard Cohen? And, um, and then the record was playing. And then I was like, who is Leonard Cohen? so i took leonard cohen home with me in record form and uh dove in and and um found that that a lot of our you know by reading and watching every documentary and interview and um, finding every kind of uh, bootlegs that i could of interviews and everything within the business that i could get my hands on i feel like I, i a kinship, and I feel like a lot of things um, about you know him and me align, and that we would have been a perfect couple had he not died.
4: Yeah, no kidding.
3: <laughs> we would have been married. He would have finally found his wife. <laughs> you know, he never got married because it was always supposed to be me.
4: <laughs> so you never got to come to the opportunity to meet him, or
3: you know? No, I didn't. Um, I- don't would, know you, a lot would you would you have been in did. awe?
4: Would you have been too in awe to to run into him?
3: No, no, no. But I, I have met I've met his band members and managers and all kinds of people. I found his coat hanger once and I kept it. Still have it. Uh, it was at a club that he had left it behind on accident, so I kept it. Um, I'd never met him, but um, but I think that I would be comfortable just sitting there, not saying anything, and and I think that. Uh, he would be too, and since he's not here to disagree, he'll, we'll have to just assume that's true.
4: <laughs> Thunderclap.
3: No. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
4: Where did you get the notion that I know is important to you of play it like it's the last time you'll ever play it?
3: That's Texas Playboys.
4: That was from the Texas yeah, Playboys. Yeah, and he also
3: said, if you're not proud of it, don't do it. Frankie specifically. Play it like the. it's the last time you're ever going to play it. Because you don't get to, you don't... It's easy to walk through things like you've done it because you've done it a few times. It's easy to, to think, oh, I'm going to play this song. I play it every day. But that's that's not how, that's not the spirit of music, you know. For the real connection with people, you got to be in the song and you've got to mean it. And as Bobby Cofer, the steel player, would say, you got to sell it. <laughs>
4: But that's a metaphor for how you live your life, isn't it, really? Oh,
3: definitely. And I I think that has something to do with um, them coming in and me learning in my... um early development because you know my frontal lobe wasn't developed till I was like 24 or 25 so a lot of the things that they told me and, and taught me still stick with me to this day like I can show everybody in any room where their, their tire pressure sticker is and how to make sure their tires are good and ready for the trip to Lipscomb, Texas <laughs> 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 yeah, I can, yeah, I can look at them and tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, I do live my life like that, you know. It, it's important that you realize that as you get older, but I also think that I, I realized that a lot when I was young because my friends were very old.
4: And you didn't just look at them as old, you look at them as wise.
3: I didn't even really notice their age by the way they acted, you know. A couple of them had many girlfriends <laughs> and, and, and I didn't say boo about it because it was understood you don't, you know. They were gentlemen about it, the, the couple of them that did. Um, I do remember walking out of the hotel, my hotel room once to go to breakfast um, at the hotel lobby and uh, one of the Texas Playboys was a little, escorted a lady to her car and I was like, did not know that she was gonna be here all night. Interesting. Wonder what she thinks about that. Then I was like, I'm not gonna say anything. And he looked at me and he said, Breakfast. And I said, Yep. <laughs> that was awesome. But you know, it was uh I didn't see them as old or anything. They were very uh witty and um most of them had, had great retention. There was they and in wonderful stories and they had you know, their in, inner band stories and jokes and all that, and it was very fun. And, um, yeah, I didn't see them as old, but I did start seeing them as old when they started passing away.
4: But they're still in your heart?
3: Oh, yeah, and we're still, we've got this music here. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. they, they're not gone forever. The music's still there.
4: So when did you first encounter John Prime?
3: Well, um, to to know when I first heard him is hard to say. I think everybody's heard him their whole lives, but um, it was on this. this, It was three days before this picture was taken. Interesting, you're asking about the things I have pictures of. So three days before this picture, I got to play my first shows with John Prine, opening and then joining his band. And on the, he, he had me for three shows to try it out, you know. I was like, we're going to just have you open three shows, see how that goes. And um, so I went and opened the three shows. And um, I was driving a, a Ford Econoline van, you know. And um, I dress up for the shows, but for long drives, I find that pointless. And... Um, so I was wearing this onesie that I found at the Target, and my friend Kelly was wearing her little leopard one, and my bass player was wearing a matching one like mine, and um, and uh, I got to the sound check. There was a long drive between one of the, one of these shows, and I was still in it because I didn't have time to change for sound check. And um, he had just finished his sound check, and uh, he said. Man, if they had one of those in a sock monkey, I'd wear it. And I said, "I said, really?" And I said, "Are you serious?" Because you know, twenty-six dollars is a lot of money. And if I'm going to find a, if I find one, there's a sock monkey, you better wear it. And then, and then he said, "If there was, I would." And on the um, last day of the last day of those three shows, I got him some white wine because I heard he liked that, and I made him a, a, a parting gift. And then it was a sock monkey uh, onesie. And um, before I went to do my set, I, I put it in his dressing room. And then uh, during my set, he, he came to the wings of the stage wearing it. And I was I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, I lost all of sense of what was happening. I was like, John Primes in a sock monkey outfit. And he was in the wings. He just walked off. Nobody believed me. And um, this is... Uh, this is oh he had took the top down. I have another picture where he's still wearing it, and um, and I took that little Polaroid that day and he signed it and um, and that was our first experience together. And then he called me to do more shows and then I toured all over uh, Europe and and the U K and Canada and and <clears throat> you know all those all those places New Brunswick, New Brunswick New Brunswick and all the places I toured around with him. And um, uh, a lot of the times he would drive his own car, a rental car. And um, so I'd ride with him a lot. And um, overseas we'd take, you know, little little planes here and there and um, drive some, but not really. Trains, we did mostly trains and flights over there. And um, we'd always sit together and hang out together and talk. And, um, yeah, we were just really good friends. And... Talked a lot about rhyming because uh, I was finishing up my master's thesis in poetry um, when I was on that last tour with him. And um, he was like, how are you doing this if you don't have any books? And I said, oh, I have I have my... Um, I have my rhyming dictionary on my computer. I have all this different, I have these apps. And then he was like, you could get a rhyming dictionary on your phone. And then he was like, can you do that to mine? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, here, you can have all the, these books. I was like, you carry those around. But um, but um, so then we started talking about that. And then we started talking about, you know, the the little tools we use, rhyming and and all that. And this is not just one conversation. That's where it started becoming like, uh, it was it was during Tree of Forgiveness and we were, that end part where he's talking about the uh, syphilitic critics and all that at the end that's when we were on the plane just just seeing how far we could take the rhyme you right. know, yeah and um, that was without the app because we were in the air and we couldn't download it, but, which I did save him the trouble and download it for him later when we landed but um, but we started talking a lot about rhyme and showing each other songs and and um, early form and stages too and then I got to see how he did it and how he worked and, and I didn't take that lightly you know and I asked him questions you know, and he'd give me real answers and he did and I feel like I, I learned a lot of things from him you know um, I used to try and avoid the dead on rhymes and he said it's a song that's what you how else are they going to remember it if you're doing near rhymes so much it's not going to they're not going to remember the words and I was like you're right. And I said, well, then how am I going to make it different? And he was like, well, you, you got to put the details in there—the details of the story and all—that's what what makes it different to the experience of another. And he said, also, you're a different person than the other songwriters, so it's always going to be different. And everybody's bringing their own experiences and their own take on the world to a song, and that's why none of them are the same, you know.
4: You made a deal with him when he wanted you to go out on the road, didn't you? About a particular song. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
4: What, can you t- talk about that? Yeah, oh, two songs.
3: Two, yeah. I told him. Um, he called and he was like, "Can you do this? Europe run with me?" It's it's about six weeks, almost seven, really. And I said, "I don't know." And it was it was during Easter too, which at that time was Mercy's favorite holiday. My daughter. And she loved it because she liked to find things and also eat candy. Um, so that's what you do when you're two and three, you love Easter. And because you like to eat candy and go on scavenger hunts, digging in bushes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, it's fun, it's fun. You know, with, with motherhood, you get a, a fresh look on what childhood really looks like that you didn't see in your own experience. And it's, that can be helpful, but all that to say. I said, I don't know, John. That's a long time to be gone, you know, from my family. I mean, it was his mercy, and I later grow up and like be like, you weren't here with me on Easter and all this kind of stuff and. And he said, she probably won't remember that at all. <laughs> and he said, I really need you to go on tour. And I was like, okay. And he said, well, it'll be double duty. You'll be opening the show and then joining me for the whole duration of the, of the music. And I said, well, you know, there's only one thing I'm good at, John, and that's music. So I can do that. But, but I don't know. And I was like, what's it pay? He was like, you know, normal pay. And I was like, well, we've got to put something else in there. And uh, he said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I'll do it. But only if you bring two songs into the set. has to be these two songs. And he said, I bet I could do that. What songs are they? Are they, are they my songs? And he was like, I was like, yeah, of course they're your songs. What am I going to do? Say play a Leonard Cohen song? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, first, we've got to bring back Clocks and Spoons. And he was like, I don't know about that because I feel like that song is, is too sad for, for me at this point in my life. And I was like, well, it's your song, can't you just make it less sad? <laughs> and, um, and, um, uh, and, and he said, oh, I think about that. And I said, the other song is Saddle in the Rain. I love playing that song. And he said, okay, yeah, we can play Saddle in the Rain. And then I printed the words out to Clocks and Spoons, and I have it in my office. Um, And I showed it to him, I was like, what part of it's sad? And um, he said that part about, um, shoot the moon right between the eyes, I'm screaming. Um, And um, he said something about when he wrote that he was in a different place than he was now because as life happens with the good and the bad, it's all beautiful. And he said, I'm going to change that to singing. And I said are we doing it? (laughs) He said, we're going to do it. And so we did both of them. And and, and when we played it live from then on, we'd sing, we'd sing, um, shoot the moon right between the eyes. I'm singing. Yeah.
4: That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So this little band that you, uh, spearheaded called the high women, um, Congratulations on that.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you. It started out as a a tiny idea I had in 2016 when I went on tour with John Prine and then my own solo tours.
4: What an amazing triumph. Um, And um, had you known your other uh, collaborators on The High Women before?
3: No, um, only in passing, like I met Marion when she was young, like about twelve or thirteen. We were playing at a festival. I was playing fiddle, I'd been playing with Billy Joe Shaver, and I saw her mom dragging her around the campfires and singing and she had an incredible voice in um then id you know she's a Texan so I'd heard she moved to town at some point, but um, I was touring with um, between between writing songs and waiting tables to, to pay for the recordings I would do later on my own as, as an artist. I was also playing as a side person for Justin Towns Earl and um, other folks, whoever would have me that I, that I thought I could learn something from. And um, so I didn't hear from her much. I would see, you know, in passing on social media that she seemed to be doing well. But the um, producer friend I made, Dave Cobb, was the first person I told my idea to after I'd kind of... Um, so, like, it doesn't seem like I, I I sit quietly by being here with me, but this is what my natural go-to around people is to get real nervous and talk. And um, <laughs> but in real, in my real spending of time, I sit in here and I stare at things, or I do you know slow things, thinking things, play music. I was working on how to describe what I wanted to do with the music and the idea and the tension intention of the band i you know, make lots of notes, and I'd been paying attention to radio stations at that time. I I, um, I, I figured out the, the, the pictures of what I wanted to do in my mind, and I'd write notes and try to figure it out. And, um, and The end of 2017 or 18, beginning, I, I told Dave Cobb when I was there working on a session, I said, um, I can't remember if I was singing or playing the fiddle or what I was doing, but at the end of it... um. I said, so I've been having this idea, and um, we've been friends for a while, so he's patient and um, was willing to hear me out, and that's one of the great things about producers is is the good ones are very patient, and and they also know what it's like to try and translate what an artist has in their mind, so they're patient with you, and they're listening, and they're not like, whoa, you look crazy. What are you (laughs) saying? They never do that. That's why it's always cool if you're with a good producer that's... You know, clear at the time when you're talking seriously, because they'll give you that time. But I said I want to start this group, and I said here's the rest. And I was scared to say it because it sounds kind of crazy. I said I want us to be called the High Women, and he said the High Women. And I was like, not like high, like as in I got high, (laughs) but like isn't high as in like you know exalted, like you know like you know. And taking the high road and all that kind of stuff, you know? And he was like, I love it. And I said, here's the other thing I want to do. I want to rewrite that song. It's going to be like, if you could picture this, because this is how I describe things in pictures. I said, if you could picture our record, it'll be like, imagine that the songs are a tree. So... The main part of the tree is like you know there's the roots, but the the centerpiece of the record will be the high w- women's song that that I'm trying to rewrite, you know, and the rest of it will be like other stories that come off of it, like the branches. And he was like, "That's a fantastic idea." And I said, "There's not going to be a tree on the cover, though," you know, like because <laughs> like sometimes you, if you just don't just leave the tree out of it, I'm just trying to tell you my idea. But he's really good with that, and. um, I don't want to be I don't want to be sassy music and I don't want it to look distressed. I want it to like look like like what we're trying to do, but also want it to take it take it back to what it's supposed to be and um like where we can sing about more than unrequited love or that we really miss our man or that we're gonna Whatever we're going to do, go out, burn some lady's house down, I don't know. Those are fun, but we also need to other stuff on the radio, too. Or not on the radio, just that people know that we're out there and they can identify with us if they feel the same and support each other and all this. And he said, that's a great idea. And I said, okay. He said, you should call Brandy Carlisle. And I didn't call her. And then uh, next time I saw him, I thought he would have forgotten, but he said, he said, so did you call Brandy Carlisle? The idea is really good. And, um, and I said, I can't just cold call Brandy Carlisle. What am I going to say? Like, I'm going to start laying into this big, long, weird story about the high women idea. And what's that going to, I just, I said, I just don't, I'm just not going to call her and talk about this. This is, this is just a hard thing to explain over the phone, I think. Like, I, I, th- I don't know, I just don't know about this. I was like, why don't you do it? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, she's playing tonight, and we'll go down there and see her. I'll introduce you, and you'll tell her then. And I, I said, okay, uh, I'll go there, and we'll see what happens, you know. And we went to the basement, the, the new basement at the time, I think. Seemed like that's where it was. And um, he walked straight back into the back green room, and he said, this is Brandy Carlisle. Brandy Carlyle, this is Amanda Shires. And, um, and she was very clearly about to walk up on the stage and sing. Like She was like, she had given her wife a hug and was walking on the stage, turning up. And I said, I'm Amanda Shires, and I have this idea. We're going to start a band. It's called The High Women, and we're going to do this, this, and that. And she she looked at me, and she said, hi, Amanda Shires. This, how about we talk about this some more later? I said, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and, I, and then I... Yeah called an uber and left and and, um dave gave her my number and then we talked later and started talking more about it and um dave introduced us to natalie hemby who at that time um was just we were just writing with her on different things and we were writing with different folks just to see what we could do and um one of the days of the of the session that me and brandy were doing um Because really, it was just me and Brandy at first. But during the session, um, Natalie came over because we wanted her to sing because, you know, we've developed this friendship. And um, she sang, and then um, I got down on one knee, and I said, would you please join our band? (laughs) She said, oh, I don't know and then um, Brandy said you really should you really should, we should, should join our band and she said we're playing with Dolly at Newport and you could be in our band and go play with us and sing with us and meet Dolly and then um, Natalie said well I'm in
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and um, Brandy called Marin. Brandy called Marin. Marin was at Fallon or something and Brandy said hey come sing some songs on the Highwaymen record, bring two songs that you like of yours that you think would fit what we're doing and um She said, okay, and that was such a good time that we kept her in there and and then made her join the band, and um, wrote some more in the studio together, and yeah. And then I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be cool if some other people could come and go? Because the idea of the the group, too, is um, because it's our uh, second group to all of our own individual careers is like, if somebody needed to take a break and have babies or somebody's parents were sick or if they just needed time off for mental purposes or whatever, they could just um, go do that and we'd expand the platform, like let somebody else come sing in their stead. And um, and even if you weren't in the original four that made the record, we are high women and we accept all, like whoever wants to play any instrument or sing or even if you're, uh, you know gender isn't um you know female or non-binary or whatever you could still come be in our group too you could be in our group doesn't matter your 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 race or creed or your your gender or anything we're open we're high women you know and um jason even has the high women tattoo and that's awesome <laughs> um, so Cheryl crow came and played the bass and um We've had guests like Mavis Staples sing with us, and um, just just anybody that'll sing with us, we do that. And, and um, invited Brittany Spencer to be a part of it recently, and um, we're going to go appear together at Marin's final concert of this tour this weekend at the Bridgestone. Well, um,
4: oh, that just made up my mind. I wasn't sure where I was
3: going to go. <laughs> yeah, we're going we're to sing a couple songs, and then... Um, when does this podcast air?
4: This is, gonna, this is now 2023.
3: Okay, so then the next day we're going to fly down to the Kennedy Center Honors and play there in um, the High Women. And at the, at the Marin show, uh, Brandy won't be there, but um, Cheryl and Brittany will. Um, but then the next day we're going to go play at the Kennedy Center Honors. And um, meet the president, and I still haven't figured out what to wear to that. And I, I, I honestly don't know what to do in those kind of things. Have to watch some YouTube's about where the forks and knives go on the plate. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm good at sitting up still, sitting up straight, and having good posture. But like having, like not fidgeting and um, having a poker face at a not poker table or a not craps table or a not blackjack table is just not me. <laughs> like I, I can play I can, I can gamble but like it's hard to sit still at one of these things
4: So will there be another High Woman album?
3: I think so um, the, the, when I think about it, when I've been noticing on our phone, you know, we've been playing more shows recently, making more appearances and um, um, we all put up, out our own records, see this is how I lead with the art I'm doing it right now so I'm not forcing or doing anything, but I kind of know already. Um, you let it kind of happen. There's less of us sending pictures of our kids and what we're cooking, and it's turned into more about like song ideas. Like even in passing at the Loretta Lynn thing, me and Natalie had a song idea. Unconsciously, we all know that that's happening.
4: But that's just honesty, right? And-
3: oh yeah, um, yeah, and then also not getting in the way of the of the intention because it's easy to be told by folks on the outside or by any anybody any kind of influence like if y'all toured or did this you could make so much money and all that or if you did that and you did that you make so much money yeah we'd make money for ourselves and others but that's not why we started it like it's our group that we do to affect change and like I said we do our individual artistry that's our identities you know and and you have to maintain your own before you can be in service of 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 another identity as as a different part in a bigger collective and um but naturally it feels like it's it's that way because if you look at it just like from the outside everybody put out records and they've toured them kind of was a bummer after when covid happened because we had shows planned and things like that and Mm Then we all took financial hits and stuff because of that, and we all survived it and made records and put them out. And, you know, it feels like the world's riding itself in and, a and direction where we could think, you know, happily and positively again about not getting our hearts broken that way.
4: Congratulations on Take It Like a Man.
3: Oh, thanks. My thanks. God. Thank you.
4: That, now, how long of a process that was during COVID that you. that you worked on that right Mm
3: -hmm. i got i was disenchanted with all of it um during covid i think i was working myself to burnout. there's all kind of things going on i write every day and it's not necessarily for songs it's just to keep the pen sharp and um, i also do poems i have a master's in poetry i've published one and decided that i would wait until i had a whole book before i published a whole collection and um not pressuring myself to finish it because I want it to be done with the right choices behind it, and not ever be influenced by things like deadlines or advances. I don't even want an advance. Just want to turn in a done book, and um, and not have anybody edit. I mean, not have anybody say boo about it or offer their input on the collection because I'm the one sitting with it all day, anyway. But they can't edit it and decide which ones they want out. They just can't tell me to write more. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so when I get there, I'll get there. The problem is this. I'm Amanda Shires and I play the fiddle. And I learned to play western swing and country. I grew up doing it. I also learned at the same time how to play in rock and roll bands because nobody was playing country or western swing. And I also learned how to play classical because I loved it. And I also learned a little bit of bluegrass but not too much and because um, western swing folks would get mad. And um, And so I was very well versed on this instrument. Now, at the same time, growing up, fiddle's not a popular instrument. What are you gonna do with that? You know, there's not a lot of lead people, lead singers and rock bands playing a fiddle.
4: The band had a little run with that.
3: I mean, they did, and Bowie had a little bit of a fiddle player, but it was like, you weren't the artist, though. Like, Charlie Daniels, but that's country and all that, and, um, and what I'd do, is more like I do like kind of like rock and country and you know folk songs and songs of the people or whatever what people now call songwriter music or americana but I I take it kind of further like I try to I try to make new sounds and keep the instrument you know going too further in like with like with with people my own age and people younger because you could see classical violin that's a thing people do and sometimes jazz but in the, in, the, in the mainstream part of the world, there's not a lot of folks doing it, really.
4: There's Lawrence gave you some added confidence for your, your mission, didn't they he? They did,
3: but, he, yeah, they did. He said, um, he said, you know, a lot of people, when they see the fiddle, they want to make me more country. You know, and I, I like country, I love it and all that, and I get it, but I'm not trying to do what's already been done. And um, not that all country's been done, I'm trying to, I have a thing I'm trying to do. Even though I broke my finger in 2011 and still have three pins in it on my fiddle-playing finger, I can still get down and and jam the hell out of it. Like if we were in a, a dueling fiddle situation or cutting heads, as Jason was saying, if we were having like a fiddle off or even with guitar players, I can I can out solo some of the best of them. And if you don't believe me, get me on that stage and I will show you your ass. <laughs> and um. So what they did is they don't try to make me do... They're just like like me in service of the song. They're not like, oh, we can't do effect pedals on your fiddle and do effects. Like, guitar players use all these cool pedals. Why can't I? Because it's a fiddle, and you have to stay country. And I like country, but country tends to go forward, too. We're not all singing like Hank Snow right now. I love them, but we're not all singing like Hank Snow right now.
4: So if somebody was just dropped onto this planet and had never experienced music in their life mm-hmm. how would you explain to them how important music is and what it does and why it's so a part of our lives
3: What well, it was our first language uh we didn't really have a language before music we kind of communicated with little rhythms and grunts and sounds and you know apparently that's what i've been told um singing and, and then connection you know um whether or not like past that idea um it doesn't matter what language you speak. Like, we've all been making joyful noises for a long time. Like, it doesn't matter what language you speak. When you put on music, you you can feel a way, a feel a certain way. And um, it makes you feel things. And, and music also is so attached with our memories um, that you can remember. Like, if you hear a song, you'll remember a detail about your own life or your own something that like occurs to you that you haven't thought of in a long time and might make you like call somebody or think about something or change your mind about something. Music has the power to change people's minds and more than that like you get in a room with people to see music you're in that room and it's like a synergy it works both ways at a live concert. You've got a community in music uh, when you go out to a live show you know those people and yourself have something in common with one another so in that room, you feel less alone in the world. But if you hear songs too, it gives you language to your own emotions and feelings. Like how many times were we, even younger or even grown ups? Like now, do we do we say, "Oh, I was thinking about you today." Here's this song, or, "Oh, I'm sorry you're going through that." There's this song that I like to play sometimes when I feel this way, or um, sometimes when you have nothing to say, you can just listen to music. Um, Not only is it the background to our lives here, this person that we've never met that's landing on our planet. Also, do you need uh, something different than oxygen to breathe while I tell you this story? Because if you're running low, that's cool. Um, I heard you live in a spaceship under the water. Is that true? Okay, back to music. Um, I was talking to our invisible alien or whoever it was. But... um, (laughs) you know, you could even play some music for, for, for this creature that has that have we have it named, and um, they'd probably... Have you ever read that book, Stranger in a Strange Land?
4: No, I know the song. I never read the book. Is that Robert Heinlein, I yes. think? Yes. Yeah, okay. um, I, I have read it. I, um,
3: that was
4: they, m- many years ago.
3: Like, I could be mistaken. Is there a part in there where he hears music for the first time? I haven't read oh. it in about six years. Uh,
4: no, it's, that's a good one to go back on. I just on.
3: wonder. Um, hmm. But there's there's a thing that happens where you can feel it or you can tap it out or not, or you can just hate it. Like, you could listen to Fugazi for two weeks and just (laughs) want to turn it off. Um, I don't know. There's things to like about it, because it led me to Leonard Cohen, but it is, if you can't sing or even hold it to, and you don't have to play an instrument to enjoy it. Um, It's a place where you can oftentimes find common ground or or conversation with folks. Um, If you have nothing to talk about, you can generally talk about music. Uh, I don't know many people that you can't talk to about it, of course, except for the hearing impaired. And um, there's a different way for music with that, for sure. But uh, then we'd have to get into specifics of what type of music we're listening to. But anyway, all that to say, it's uh, connective and it's universal and it's... um, I treat it very, very seriously. Like, I don't take myself seriously, but I take the music seriously. Because it's an energy. Like if you're going to sing something, that energy goes somewhere.
4: I like how you take a question inside out. You find something on the the end of it to nip and tuck and mm-hmm. poke at, and mm-hmm. that's a that's a, that's a fun way to take a question. I, w- I wasn't on my best behavior for it at first, but hopefully I'm I'm learning the Amanda Shires way.
3: Oh, it's uh, I, I just I've been told I'm a nonlinear thinker.
4: Totally. <laughs> okay. Totally. Yeah so your attraction to
3: self acceptance i'm working on it cuz for a long time I, I didn't like any part of the music business that wasn't the music because the interview part would freak me out because i always get in my head about they're not going to understand me and then i just look forward to self they're like if they if they care they'll if they care enough to interview you they're going to put up with your non-linear joke and <laughs> stuff, you know
4: of course <laughs> No, it's very linear,
3: <laughs> and it's in a circle. It's a it's a, it's a steady circle.
4: <laughs> it is. It is. But it's but it's not a boring circle okay, oh, that's by, good. by any stretch of the imagination. Circles inside a circle.
3: yeah, you could ask me anything now.
4: <laughs> so what about birds?
3: So it's about freedom, and it's about the way they look, and it's about their traits and their um, unique to them things. Like you know, with the crows, and they can make tools. It's all very fascinating to me how they. They're different bird calls and what they mean, all that. I just, I can't get over it.
4: Well, I think it's about the joy of them, too. You the know, joy of,
3: they're magic, though, aren't know? they?
4: I mean, the joy is, is spectacular, you know?
3: And they don't seem to want for much, you know? It's not like they're seeking a new car or a shiny new birdhouse.
4: Right. <laughs> well... I take the great joy of being able to have this opportunity to speak to you on my podcast. I can't thank you enough, Amanda I'm really
3: so glad that you'd have me.
4: Really. This this is so special. I'm so grateful and uh, thank you for this, but thank you for your your music as well. Oh
3: no, no problem. Um, I'm just now starting to settle down, so I promise uh, I'll talk uh, less about me and more about y'all. <laughs> I know this is the, it's an unnatural thing, the interview where we just talk about me. It feels funny, but I'm doing it. <laughs>
4: well, you did a terrific job. Well, thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank
3: you. I, I had a coffee and lots of candy. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Amanda. and if you ever need a break, you just say, "Hold on, I got to eat this candy."
4: <laughs> Taking a walk with Buzz Night is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.